DP. And yeah, then, I'm happy. That makes me. I'm not worried about that at all. And there's yep. certainly pilots, pilots, patients who walk around with a stable pilot count in their. I've got patients who walk around with a pilot count in their thirties and do so every day for for years with no yes. problems. Yeah. So, um, like everything, it's a balance of risks. Yes. Hi everyone, uh, welcome back to the podcast. This week I have a uh, guest with me, uh, Simon Kavanagh, who's a haematologist. Um, Simon's kindly agreed to come along and have a bit of a discussion with us about all things relating to thrombocytopenia, which is a common uh, occurrence or we run into um, a lot in the obstetric world. Um, so I asked Simon to give me a little bit of a blurb about himself that I could... Um, pass on so you, you did most of your training at Charles Gardner and Path West um, initially and then you went to Toronto for a couple of years have some fun over there is that right yeah, Simon that's right, right. Was a fellowship for a couple of years yep and uh, now you spend 0.4 of your time here at King Edward um, and then some time at St John of God and CBAK and what was the other place ACL Austri- Australian Clinical Labs one of the pri- okay. private pathology providers that are just do lab work okay them. yep uh, and he also admits he's a semi-retired cyclist, a semi-retired cyclist who does some running now. But you fractured your hip, play, or your knoff. Yeah, crashing. Crashing. Oh, okay. Uh, Did you get in, hit by a car or something? Interesting <laughs> wish, story. No, I wish I could say it was uh, <laughs> someone else's fault. Oh, okay. It's a lack of ability on my part. I okay. think. Yeah, I did a bit of cycling, but I haven't fractured anything yet. Fingers crossed. So. I'll get my fingers crossed for you. <laughs> uh, so thanks for coming along. Uh, Simon, we were also going to invite uh, one of my colleagues, Nolan McNeil, one of the other anaesthetic um, consultants in our department, because he was involved in a um, paper which sort of stimulated us to um, use this as a, a podcast topic. Which was um, there was, I think, there was a um, consensus or collaborative position paper on the management of thrombocytopenia in pregnancy, published in uh, ANS Jog, the you know, Australian New Zealand Journal of Obstetrics and Gynaecology. Um, so we, I just thought. Uh, Simon, that we could just have a discussion, uh, sort of loosely follow the way that they talk about it in this article. I'll leave a link for people who want to um, look at that article and any other articles that yep. you might think might be useful, Simon. But um, so basically, I'm going to try and pick your brains because you know this better than I do, that's for sure. Um, and yeah, I thought maybe we could just start off with just some sort of common or the basics of what thrombocytopenia in pregnancy is caused by and what, uh, how common it is and all that sort of thing. Yes, are you able to help us with that? Yeah, it feels like a... Well, it is a common problem. We see a lot of it here. Um, but in sort of all terms, probably about 5 to 10% of people uh, of pregnant women develop thrombocytopenia at some point during their pregnancy. Yep. Um, that's mostly gestational, uh, but there are many other causes, including all the non-pregnancy-associated causes of low platelets as well. So... All the usual things like medication effect, infection, um, liver disease, yep. uh, etc., still come to come to play. But we but we really focus at least at this site on the gestational causes, um, gestational thrombocytopenia being the, the commonest, immune thrombocytopenia, and then all the the weird and challenging uh, pregnancy associated causes like preeclampsia and uh, the fragmentation syndromes. 
Yep. Um, and I guess we better get a bit of a skewed picture because we're a referral centre, so people with these syndromes yeah. tend to come here. So maybe it's not as common as... Uh, it's more, yeah, more common here than elsewhere, but can I just um, uh, ask some simple questions? So mm. I sort of, in my head, I sort of understand how immune so thrombocytopenia works. There's an, an antibody, autoantibody against the That's right, platelets, yeah. and so presumably that attaches to them, and then the spleen uh, yeah, breaks them down and you get... Um, yeah, thrombocytopenia. Uh, thrombocytopenia. Yeah. What's the cause of gestational thrombocytopenia? Still not, still not understood. Right. It's thought uh, probably to reflect increased clearance. Um, cardiac output increases during pregnancy. There's yep. more blood flowing through the liver, more blood flowing through the spleen, so that may increase clearance. Yep. Um, but probably also a dilutional component as well, just with the plasma volume changes in pregnancy. Okay. And so, in, and I guess in sort of um, real terms, it, People with mild gestational thrombocytopenia, which is defined as what less than 150 per yeah, so whatever the unit is exactly. So less than 150 by 10 to the nine per liter is right. thrombocytopenia in pregnancy, and you know I, I would it doesn't mean anything uh, clinically, does it? I would ignore a result of 140 of 130. I mean they're not clinically relevant. Okay, uh, it's only when they start drifting below 100 or there's some something else nasty yeah. that you might see emerging that it becomes to become clinically significant. Um. How do we tell the or what's what's the, how do you sort of differentiate if someone phones you up and um, asks you for advice because someone's got a low platelet count between someone who has got something serious and someone who's got gestational thrombocytopenia? So this, I guess, that's the crux of the question. And and should we always call you or should we do some of the simple sifting yourself? Otherwise, you, if it's five to ten percent of pregnant women, you get overwhelmed. Mm, absolutely. Um, there's there's a few simple things that I sort of always kind of filter out or try to filter out yep. um, if there's any other sort of active medical issues if there's active sepsis for example if there's uh, antibiotics have recently been commenced um, if there's been a recent viral infection those are common causes of thrombocytopenia is that the virus or the medications uh, med- viral illnesses are a common cause for yep. cytopenias in general we'll often okay. see you know if you get a nasty EBV um, or a nasty flu-like illness, you can get a mild cytopenia, mild neutropenia, mild thrombocytopenia quite commonly. So that's a, that's a common thing. Yep. Typically, though, by the time people come to attention and you repeat it a week later, it'll be gone. So okay. it's short, it tends to be short-lived. <clears throat> the presence of anything else, you know, if you're hypertensive, if there's kidney injury, liver enzyme abnormalities, headaches, etc., you're thinking more about the severe preeclampsia, the fragmentation syndromes and so forth. The real challenge I find is distinguishing gestational thrombocytopenia from immune thrombocytopenia in pregnancy. Yep. And that's because both of these are diagnoses of exclusion. Yep. There's no diagnostic test for either of them. You might get a bit of supportive evidence on the basis of autoantibody testing. Yep. If you've got a strong positive uh, ANA or a strong lupus anticoagulant or something, ITP is more likely. Okay, yep. But there's no diagnostic test. And so you come down to the clinical history, the trajectory of the platelet count, whether there was thrombocytopenia pre-pregnancy, uh, that's valuable. It suggests ITP or some other process rather than gestational, uh, or the fact that gestational thrombocytopenia is primarily in the third trimester. Right. It can, so it, so it, it comes can occur earlier. earlier. It's in a late second. Right. But typically, thrombocytopenia seen in the first mm. and early second trimesters is in quotation marks, always not gestational. Yep. And I think in the um, 
you know, the paper that we referred to at the start of two, they said like more severe thrombocytopenias, you get more suspicious, is that correct? Yeah, like to, if it was like 70 or 60? To, to or an extent, yeah. The uh, gestational thrombocytopenia is typically above 100. Um, I, my threshold is 80 uh, for beginning to be more suspicious of immune than gestational, but um, different papers have different numbers, yeah. and 70 is quoted in this paper, and it's, a, it's as good a threshold as any. Yep, okay. Um, I'm not quite that sh- there are comments about uh, gestational thrombocytopenia still being diagnosed down to platelet count of about 50. Right. And I'm not sure how that's being established, uh, how you distinguish a platelet count of 55, let's say, from just from gestational thrombocytopenia from ITP. Yeah. Uh, given, you know, do you do a bone marrow biopsy? Do you do steroid testing? Do you give IVIG? It's, none of these things are diagnostic tests. Um. All right, so that leads on, I guess, because you want to know, you sort of want to have, it would be nice if you could tell a difference easily because yeah. one of them is treated with immunosuppressant drugs, isn't it? That's right, the yep. other. <clears throat> So um, t- tell us about that, how you decide on that and what treatments you give, So I guess. My, my general rule is uh, unless, it, unless there is a pressing need to treat, you're better off not treating. The, the therapies that we use, typically corticosteroids, prednisolone and the like, um, sometimes methylpred um, or intravenous immunoglobulin are either potentially toxic, uh, particularly during pregnancy, yep. when pregnant women don't like steroids at all at all. Yep. Although we give a lot of celestone. <laughs> true, true. That's true. But they um, usually have a, a diabetic ketoacidosis afterwards. <laughs> yeah, so we, you know, we try to avoid it. And my, my rough rule if, is if the platelet count is less than 30, I'll embark on treatment okay other sources will say 20 it depends on where you are how close you are to hospitals etc but 30 is a number in my head for you must treat if it's gt or itp okay um if the platelet can is otherwise stable 30 to 80 i'm not you know 30 to 100 i'm not too stressed provided we can intervene before delivery rolls around and I think that's the key thing, is that the risk is not so much of spontaneous bleeding during pregnancy, but it's the risk at the time of delivery. Right. If you could guarantee a platelet count of above 50 at delivery, then the risk of spontaneous bleeding or bleeding postpartum is still low, and it doesn't influence decisions uh, regarding C-section uh, versus vaginal delivery. It doesn't really influence other uh, bleeding risk or treatment during pregnant, uh, during the del- time of delivery, but it has more impact on what you guys do in terms yes, of anaesthesia. Once again, that's all case-based, sort of um, expert-level opinion, not based on... Yeah, and yeah. that's the challenge in this whole field. Yeah. Um, but in terms of trying to get people to that point, let's say we were to embark on treatment, uh, I'd often use a short course of low dose. Now, what low means differs. Uh, I'll often use a 12.5 milligram dose of prednisolone yep. as a bit of a testing of the waters to see if there's a stabilisation in platelet count or an improvement. Um, others will use a short burst of, say, 25 to 30 milligrams per day um, to, again, see if there's a, a response. Because if you see an improvement in platelet count, that really suggests ITP as opposed to gestational. However, the big but is that it doesn't exclude the possibility. The numbers vary, but I've read that sort of up to about 30% of women will not respond to steroids or IVIG particularly well during pregnancy. Uh, yeah. 
anecdotally, that number seems lower in real life. I, I certainly haven't hit numbers of you know 30%, but there are not insignificant non-responders. Um, and the other thing is, so what you know, ITP and GTP have dif- uh, different um, management uh, in regards to the fetus as well, don't they, on the neonate? Yeah, so gestational yeah. gestational thrombocytopenia won't affect the neonate at all. Yep. Um, ITP can and does, and again, the numbers vary. It's somewhere between about 15 and 30% of, uh, of neonates born to women with ITP have low platelets. The risks of severe thrombocytopenia are low, probably about 5% uh, of babies born to women with ITP have um, platelet counts less than 20 but the risk of hemorrhage is actually even lower than that. It's probably less than 1%. Um, so we make a lot of recommendations about avoiding forceps, vacuum, scalp. Yeah, uh, scalp that's right. Sample, I, I do so see a lot of, there's a lot of discussion on that ward, round, um, ward rounds during, on lay board and, um, you know, avoiding these things. Yeah, yeah. and whether there's, uh, but I mean, I think the, the real world hemorrhage rate is actually very, very low. Okay. All right, that's good. Any... Uh, Anything else we want to talk about on those before we get on to the more um, sort of uh, serious subset of the frag- uh, you've called it fragmented um, Fragment- fragmentation syndromes? Yeah. Uh, look, I think it sort of covers the most of it. I mean, I think the other thing that I would usually do for women with thrombocytopenia in pregnancy is keep a, a loose sort of watch on it. Yep. Blood count maybe every month or so once you've done, demonstrated a thrombocytopenia until you get into that last six to eight weeks or so you know 32 34 weeks onwards probably check it fortnightly to weekly depending on what the platelet count is and intervene if i think the platelet count is going to drop below about 80 at the time of delivery okay so that's when you'll kick kick in and and give them some steroids and that that will depend on how experienced the anaesthetists are uh, how comfortable they are with single shot spinal versus epidural versus other anesthesia um but I like, I mean, I use the number 80 just because I like having a little bit of a buffer before uh, before we get talked flatly, no, not doing it. Yep. <laughs> and I prefer not to, you know, resort to platelet transfusion, and that's especially an issue outside of the Perth metro area. Yes. Well, I've got an interesting uh, hypothetical case we're going to discuss at the end. <laughs> Simon's already <laughs> smiled at, um, which is loosely based on some true phone calls that we've received over the years. Um, okay. Tell us about the fragmentation syndrome. So I've also seen microangiopathies. Is that what's what would we what would we see these ones called in the literature? Oh, you, you'll see a variety of things. Yep. You'll see um, Maha M A H A yep. microangiopathic, microangiopathic hemolytic anemias. Yep. Um, fragmentation syndromes, thrombocytopenia with fragmentation. There's a, a whole host of names. Yep. Um, these are the things like thrombotic, thrombocytopenic purpura, or TTP, yep. hemolytic uremic <coughs> syndrome, HUS. Yep. It's, uh, it's newer cousin, atypical HUS. Yep. Um, and other sort of more pregnancy-specific conditions like HELP syndrome and uh, pre- severe preeclampsia, uh, PET. Yep. So we certainly see a lot of HELP syndrome here because um, being a referral centre, we, we get mm-hmm. some of them, uh, most of them or a lot of them. Uh, what's the mechanism? Just explain to you know, fragmentation and how it occurs. So, so it's all to do with the endothelium, isn't it? Yeah, so <laughs> essentially like uh, the, the fragmentation re- relates to the, the red blood cell morphology uh, yep. down the microscope. And what we see in the lab is abnormal numbers of what we call helmet cells or schistocytes. Yep. Um, 
and that occurs essentially due to microthrombus formation within the vasculature and shearing of the red cells. But the pathophysiology by which that microthrombus formation occurs is, is much more varied. Uh, it's poorly understood in some conditions, conditions like TTP, uh, it's often due to uh, lack of a protein that cleaves von Willebrand factor. Uh, in atypical HUS, it's a, a complement-mediated attack on, on red cells that's not shut down. So there's a variety of different uh, okay. uh, sort of initiating pathophysiologies, but the downstream consequences of microthrombus formation and fragmentation and, and platelet consumption due to that thrombus formation is the same. All right, tricky question now then. So how do we... How do we, like, um, what sort of things should we have on our radar to, to identify that this is one of these um, fragmentation syndromes or MAHAs as opposed to the stock standard ITP, GTP we've talked about? So and what tests should we do? What's your so advice? The, the, the most probably important thing there is a blood blood count and blood film. Yep. So uh, looking for the schistocytes or the seeing, helmet. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So if we're seeing fragmentation on a blood film, that's always abnormal. And yep. the extent of fragmentation usually corresponds at least loosely, with the severity of the condition and the uh, the likelihood of uh, a diagnosis. Would the laboratory technician who sees these um, fragmentation um, schistocytes, would they follow that up or what's, how would usually... Because yeah. so I'm, I'm sort of thinking, how do we make sure we don't... This, how do people not sort of slip through unnoticed? So the typical uh, response is if, you, if the, the scientist or the tech who's looking at the film sees fragmentation, sees thrombocytopenia... That's a phone call to the, the duty haematologist for that lab. Yep. Um, okay, that's good. Whether that's myself at King Edward or the duty haematologist at QE2 for branches and regional centres. Yep. Um, that film then gets referred. Now that can take hours, that day to arrive if it's from Broome, for example, but we can often take photographs and we're moving towards a, ultimately an electronic slide scanning system where we can actually review remotely. Okay, that sounds great. Um, that'll... <laughs> in the future eventually <laughs> uh, I'm not putting a timeline on that one um, we're still writing on pieces of paper at King Edward yeah. <laughs> in the medical record so we'll uh, we'll we'll get we'll get notified and if if there's a you know if there's a significant burden of fragmentation that then from my point of view that prompts a phone call to the clinicians to say look we've seen fragmentation it looks like this could be a microangiopathic process yep. what's the clinical situation is there anything else there that can help us narrow it down as to preeclampsia, TTP, etc.? Um, and you can find in this Anne's jog paper, there's a, there's a nice table there that tries to yes, summarise the summarise some of the clinical and laboratory differences. Yep, these things all overlap, and yeah. so it's it's not only what is present in front of you at the time, but what evolves over the coming hours, days. Um, but I, I'm always concerned. I'm always at a very low threshold for sort of uh, evacuation to a, a better, better equipped site. And so this, these microangiopathic sort of processes often affect other organ systems, don't they? So the liver, yep. obviously, and um, and obviously, you know, we've already talked. You've already talked about the red cells getting hemolysed as well, mm. and, and they can have uh, renal dysfunction and yeah. cardiovascular problems with That's hypertension right. and. Neuro- neurological problems a case a uh, case a year or so maybe a year and a half ago now yeah. at uh, King Eddie's with a, a lady who developed a, a florid fragmentation after delivering it was a complicated delivery but uh, ended up on dialysis for a period of time yes uh, was only able to come off with some pretty heavy duty monoclonal antibody therapy this was yeah. a atypical HUS right um, okay yeah I think I vaguely remember 
um, the story. So, and so those other ones like TTP and HUS and atypical HUS slip through uh, because they often look like help syndrome, don't they? And everyone says it's pregnancy, it's help syndrome. Yeah, so it's it's often the the things that I always sort of look out for is renal failure out of keeping with sort of the extent of other sort of illness. Yeah, because you know. that's not a common thing in the help syndrome, is Exa- it? Exactly, yeah. and it, um, it always gets challenging because these people are... It seems like there's always a postpartum hemorrhage and there's always some other problem, yeah. and so there's always a maybe it's this, maybe it's that, but severe acute renal failure um, and unexpected neurological sequelae, yep. um, both big red flags from my point of view. And if you're seeing those things, then that really does... Uh, raise on major alarm bells. Yeah, and so um, what are the special tests you do f- for that? Is there's uh, Adam's TS-13? Adam, 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 yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Adam I don't know who Adam 13. is, but he's a troublemaker. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a long, complicated <laughs> acronym that I struggle to remember. So you, you do a test for that, and I know that it takes a while to come back, doesn't it? That's the one for TTP, isn't it? That's right, yeah. yeah. So very, very low levels of Adam's TS-13 support or indicative of TTP, They don't, and they help sort of exclude that. Yep. Um, and that's important because that's uh, you know, the treatment for TTP is with plasma infusion as a temporising measure and then plasma exchange. Yeah, so it is important to differentiate. So excluding that yep. straight off the bat or as quickly as possible is really important. If you get normal levels of that, all the other things are still on the table. Yeah. Um, classic HUS, you, I mean, we, we see following gastroenteritis with the E. coli's. So yep. excluding shiga toxin producing E. coli is generally pretty easy. How do you do that? Oh, I'm naive as a PCR test or something? Yeah, or? so history alone. I mean, if they've not had yep. gastro, it's unlikely. Yeah. Uh, and then a stool sample for toxin producing E. coli. Yeah. It can be PCR'd or, or cultured. Um, the others then become a clinical diagnosis. And this is probably going down too much of a rabbit hole, but atypical HUS, what's the, uh, what's the cause of that one? Uh, <laughs> test for it. M- multiple, you can say multiple. pass if you want. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's probably it's a, really unlikely. Uh, really rare. I think it's a, ter- it's a terrible name, um, but essentially it's a, a disorder of complement regulation or okay. dysregulation. So it's genetic factors that predispose in not insignificant numbers of people. So it's not really related to HUS. It's just another it's ma- a, yeah, another microangiopathy. Yeah, that's why I think it's a terrible name. Okay, um, that's great. It, that makes it easier. I, that was confusing. I yeah, admit. it's it's a complement dysregulation disorder okay. with consequent fragmentation and, and platelet consumption, and renal failure is a really predominant feature, probably more so than in the other Maha Okay, that's good. It's good to hear. Um, all that. Okay, so um, going back back up the digging ourselves out of the deep hole and coming back to the normal world. So new. So um, the other the other common problem that uh, so often, uh, sometimes us uh, Judeanistas here at King, we get phone, I get phone calls, from, say from um, the country uh, or other colleagues in uh, smaller hospitals, asking about um, you know can we do epidurals or spinals with thrombocytopenia? And um, once again, that's like you know the evidence that's based on is very sort of low level. Um, uh, so common scenario will get us you know like I think most people, and, and it goes into. Uh, it goes into this in the article if you read it, but most people are happy to do um, any sort of neuraxial procedure in people with pla- uh, platelets over 100, definitely, and uh, sort of between 70 and 100 if they've got normal coagulation function mm. and it's not pl- you know, plummeting rapidly, uh, we're also happy. Yeah. Um, so this gets a bit complicated after that, doesn't it? Absolutely. <clears throat> and there is some theory, we, we do 
think that there's a theoretically uh, a theoretical difference in the risk of an epidural hematoma between putting a small spinal needle in, which is sort of just slides in and out and um, nothing's left behind, versus putting in a big two needle, which you're threading a long, stiff plastic catheter in, which is more likely to sort of maybe um, nip a few epidural veins or um, cause some bleeding, mm. both at the time you put it in or pull it out. Um, so uh, there is, and then once you know, once the plate decay gets below seventy, then it gets sort of complicated, and there's different levels of. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. Some some people different levels of comfort that mm. people, will, you know, the more experienced I've found, uh, the anaesthetists sometimes the lower they're happy to, to tolerate as long as everything else is normal, okay. especially if they're avoiding a, like something like a difficult airway or some other, you know, where, the, where a general anaesthetic has actually got some risks involved as well. Um, I find with with many of these things, comfort levels sort of rise slowly until they fall very <laughs> rapidly after something goes wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. Same thing with surgeons and operating with thrombocytopenia. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think there's any, there's certainly no good, and there probably never will be good quality evidence to guide us on this one. Yep. Um, yeah, that's right. The levels of sort of less than 70, 70 to 100, and 100 are certainly clinically kind of useful, but it's uh, it depends what sort of backup you've got what the the rest of the coags are like yeah. whether there's a history of bleeding outside of those coag abnormalities or, yep. or lack thereof and as well for me the tempo of thrombocytopenia if if the play the count was 200 yesterday and is now 81 today yeah that makes I'm, me nervous i'm much more nervous about bleeding and i would be erring away from that yes i agree procedure and that usually is something serious like the HELP syndrome or fragmentation syndrome which is in general Mm. a much more scarier thing for um, you know having some sort of serious bleeding problems absolutely yeah but you know someone had a platelet count of 85 and it's you know, one of you guys have assessed them and said it's gestational or if it's uh, stable or it's ITP. for yeah. three months and yeah, we've that's said, right. oh, it's probably a stable chronic ITP. And yeah, I'm happy. That makes me, I'm not worried about that at all. And there's yeah. certainly platelets, platelets patients who walk around with a stable platelet count in their... I've got patients who walk around with a platelet count in their 30s and do so every day for, for years with no problems. Yes. Yeah. So, um, like everything, it's a balance of risks. Yes. Yeah, so some of the times, some of the things I'll say when we do uh, like pretend vivas with some of our registrars for the final exams, you know, we'll have I'll pick a platelet count which is sort of just <laughs> just under just, what everyone's ha- under, happy with. So then I'll tell them that the patients are 200 kilos with a difficult airway, and they need to have a cesarean, um, but their platelet count's 59 or something. So most of us would probably still do a single shot spinal because the risk of you know failed airway and hypoxia is uh, yes. is also uh, present, and you know. You, um, you just have to choose a, a, yep. a course of action and go for it. Um, all right. Uh, so, uh, Simon, sometimes people say um, that the machine, the automated sort of platelet count on the full blood count, which just goes through a machine, is not accurate. Um, how are platelets counted by the machine and when should we um, consider other ways of assessing with, whether the platelet count's accurate? So the the most common way platelets uh, are identified in the in the blood sample is purely based on size. Yep. So if it's a cellular element between this size and that size, I can never remember. I think it's between two and twenty femtolitres. Don't quote me. Uh, it's considered a platelet. Yep. 
in conditions with increased platelet turnover, so in, in ITP, in pregnancy, in marrow regeneration, in a variety of things, you'll have some platelets that are larger. Uh, and in some inherited syndromes as well, you'll have giant platelets. And the analyzer cannot recognize those or classify those as, as platelets. Okay, because they're too big. Because they're too big. And so uh, a variety of ways you can respond to that. You can do optical platelet counts. You can do uh, antibody-driven, you know, monoclonal antibody, uh, fluorescent platelet counts. I- essentially, these are ways of overcoming a problem with large platelets. Okay. What do we do at King Edward if uh, uh, someone's platelet so we, Yeah, so we do we do these standards sort of approach, and if it's, it's sort of thought to be spurious based on film, we go back and go. Uh, we do a monoclonal antibody, yep. um, essentially targeting a platelet antigen, and then a fluorescence uh, okay. test on that to determine what the the real in quotation marks platelet count is, um, and that that also sort of leads on just in passing to the the not uncommon problem of uh, platelet aggregation. Yes. So if it's there's a number of people out there who, if you collect blood into EDTA, a standard purple top tube, there'll be platelet aggregation. Uh, okay. It's an EDTA-related phenomenon. Sometimes it's collection difficulties, but most of the time it's EDTA-related. Okay. So we use a blue tube instead? So you use a blue tube. Okay. And you need to make sure that it's... Do not spin, otherwise the lab will default to spinning it and treating it as a coag sample. Right, okay. So write, write very clearly. Same as rotum, don't spin it. Yeah, do not spin. Same issue occurs, you get platelets clumping together, they are not counted as platelets by the analyzer, and you're also lo- losing, in, in quotation marks, platelets from the circulation. We will occasionally find people who you cannot get a reliable platelet count on. I've had these people before and they're an absolute nightmare because every time we see them in the lab we then go have to go and do count you know 20 odd fields down the microscope and say well we think the platelet count <laughs> is about this it's a complete estimate yep but an eyeball test oh it's about 100 okay yeah, we're happy with that fortunately they're rare so doing the old optical count where someone actually has to do like microscopy and count things. Actually yeah. sit down and, and manually and count, and count is, is, uh, is, is still is, a thing is, in, in some people. Yeah. Okay. It's a complete... Right. Yeah, because it has been a real issue. Like we have had um, like women who are in labour screaming in pain and then they do a plate count and they say, oh, no, we need to do an op- optical count and we need to send it to QE2. Yeah. And like um, people are standing around waiting, you know, can I put this epidural in yeah. this poor woman who's in agony? Uh, waiting for the count to come back, yeah. and um, and so we we'll, we we know that if the if the analyzer count straight off the machine is a reasonable level, yeah. Know, let's let's say we measure a platelet count of ninety on the machine, it may be higher when we go back and do additional tests, but it's unlikely to be lower than that. Yeah, that's right. So same same thing with platelet. Just keep going because you it's not going to be low. You yeah. might see some platelet aggregates on the film, but if your your analyzer count is a platelet count of eighty five then you're pretty good to go because it will only be higher than that in the circulation. Yep. And this is all, you know, these are in vitro Yeah, that's right, problems. in vitro artefacts. Yeah, as yep. opposed to in yep. vivo yep. problems. Okay, good. Thanks again. <laughs> Second no, time around. No <laughs> Hi, everyone. This recording uh, goes for a little bit longer than I expected, so I've decided to split this uh, into two podcasts. So we're going to stop here and resume again next week. Thanks, Simon. And next week, uh, 
you can hear the second part of the podcast where we continue on the theme of talking about all things platelets. We're going to discuss um, platelet transfusions, um, uh, how platelets are derived and how supplied in Western Australia, and then we're also going to talk about some hypothetical, rambling hypothetical cases, uh, including how to manage um, bleeding patients with thrombocytopenia in a remote uh, location. Uh, and then, so a little bit off topic, um, a similar scenario, a woman who is having a bleed who has antibodies or is a difficult cross-match in a remote setting, you know, how do you know uh, what blood products are safe to give or are any of them safe to give? So see you again next week for that one. Bye.